Uh, We're continuing our summer series on the Minor Prophets, which are uh, 12 books in the Old Testament. Probably the, if I had to guess, the most overlooked kind of section of Scripture. Um, But it's been amazing to see what God has already taught us um, in these few weeks as we've gotten into this series. We're calling this series God's Unmistakable Voice because in these 12 books, the Minor Prophets, we see God speaking with uh, remarkable clarity to his people um, as they struggled with all kinds of things, uh, including the consequences of their own actions as they uh, turned away from the Lord uh, and abandoned him. Uh, And we see God continually uh, reaffirming his justice and his holiness uh, while simultaneously reassuring his people uh, that he loves them and he has plans to rescue and restore them. Uh, And today we come to the book of Jonah, Easily the most well-known of the minor prophets. I can remember learning about Jonah when I was a little kid uh, and being mesmerized at the idea of a whale swallowing a person and then spitting them out three days later. Uh, I remember picturing, uh, you know, Jonah sitting in this cavernous uh, belly of a whale, uh, an image that no doubt was influenced uh, by a movie I loved uh, as a kid. Here's Geppetto in the... uh, belly of the whale in Pinocchio. And so I remember thinking, oh, yeah, Geppetto, Jonah, basically same situation. And uh, (laughs) uh, I don't really remember the story of Jonah as a kid. I remember just being kind of fixated on the whale aspect of it. Um, And the image of Jonah being swallowed by the whale has really captured the imaginations of people for, for centuries. I and mean, if you follow kind of the history of art, you see you know, early Christian catacombs, they were painting pictures of Jonah being swallowed by a sea monster. And then, um, you know, when you get into the Renaissance, he's got like a toga and it's a catfish or something. <laughs> and then, of course, all the kids' books about Jonah and the whale. And so it's, it's, it's a book that has really kind of gotten into our imaginations. Um, and uh, I think uh, kind of like um, Noah's Ark and the Garden of Eden, it's a, it's a story that has kind of transcended the faith community and gotten out into the popular consciousness. And I find actually when Jonah is spoken about, when his story is spoken about today, it's often in conversations um, about kind of whether God exists and whether we can trust the Bible because it's such a strange narrative. It's kind of like, okay, a person being swallowed by a whale three days, like, that, that could never happen, therefore scripture is kind of unreliable, it's all myths, that kind of thing. Uh, we'll come back to the logic of that thinking a little bit later. Uh, but I want to ask this question, what if focusing on the whale misses the main point of the book completely? What if there is a life-giving lesson for us that we've missed because we've been focused on this miraculous moment uh, with the whale, the large fish? Uh, Kids, of course, love this story, and uh, as God's word um, uh, is able to speak to us as children, it's, of course, a beloved story. But make no mistake, the story of Jonah, the prophet, and what happened with him is not a kid's story, and it's not a simple story. God has a powerful, challenging, and hopeful message for us. And so if we turn to the scriptures with an open heart and open mind, uh, his spirit speaks to us. So let's, let's dive in. If you brought your Bible with you, uh, we encourage you to do that here on Sundays at Real Hope. Turn to Jonah. If you're unfamiliar with the layout of Scripture, Jonah is kind of getting toward the end of the Old Testament, um, just after the book of Obadiah, right before Micah. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, we have some Bibles on tables. We'd be happy for you to take that home. Um, that would be our gift to you. 
Um, Let me set the stage for just a second before we get into the text of Jonah itself. Jonah is unique. The book of Jonah is unique because among the 12 uh, minor prophets, it's a narrative about Jonah and what happened to him and his relationship with God. The rest of the minor prophets, it's mainly uh, God is speaking to his people and the prophets kind of passing along the message. You don't really learn much about the prophet himself. But in the case of Jonah, it's a story about him and something that happened to him and what God was saying to him during these events, um, which I think is why it's so memorable among the 12 books is it's a story. Uh, Jonah was ministering, living in the 700s BC, which is kind of uh, right in the heart of the time these ancient Israelite prophets were active. Um, It was a time when um, uh, if you were an Israelite, you were very aware of the fact that just to the east, this massive empire, the Assyrians, were on the rise. And uh, the Israelites back then were kind of small potatoes. It's this little sliver of land. They were not a big political force, but Assyria was vast, wealthy, powerful, militaristic, and they'd started throwing their weight around, and they were just kind of taking over all of these countries. There was a lot of anxiety in Israel over this. Let me show you a map here real quick. So everything in blue here it, uh, eventually became part of the Assyrian Empire, all the way from uh, what we would say is kind of southern Iraq and Iran today, uh, Lebanon, Syria, Israel, even down through Egypt. Nineveh, the city Nineveh, was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Um, it was located on the Tigris River. It's actually the remains of it are uh, just across um, from Mosul in Iraq today. This is an artist's rendering of what Nineveh may have looked like. Massive, I mean, just metropolis by ancient standards. And this was the epicenter of this existential threat to Israel, Nineveh. So with that in mind, let's start reading Jonah. Verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Highlight, if you're taking notes, highlight preach against it. Right there, in the first two verses, we see this is very different from all the other minor prophets because Jonah is not speaking to his own people. He's not going to his own people, the Israelites, with a message from their God, the God of Israel. God says this. No, he's being sent to uh, a foreign adversary into the capital city to deliver a message from God, and it's not going to be a very nice message. He's being sent behind enemy lines. That's how it would have felt to him. So let's see how Jonah responds, verse 3. But Jonah ran away. From the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Okay, so we'll stop there. Uh, he just decided, I'm just going to run away. <laughs> Nineveh, no, I don't think so. I'm not up for that. And it's really kind of an illogical thing. You know, he's, he's a prophet. He believes in God. He believes God is real. But for some reason in this moment, he's like, uh, he's... Maybe God's afraid of water. I'll just get in a boat, and I'll go this way. He'll forget about me. He's got other things on his mind, and I'll just sort of fade away. And uh, I think it just shows that it was just fear. It was just plain fear. It was the idea of going to that fearsome capital, Nineveh, of the Assyrian Empire. It was just too much for him. And so he's just, he just goes to the coast, to the port. He says, hey, who's going to Tarshish, which many scholars think was like near Spain. So basically, what's the farthest west anybody can go in the Mediterranean? Like, I'm on board. Let's go. And so he gets onto this boat, and let's see what happens. Verse 4. 
Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. They cast lots. The lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who's responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them. And they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, what should we do to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. The sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you please. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish. Highlight that. The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Okay, so let's stop there. So he tries to get away, and God's like, no, you're going to Nineveh. I've got a plan. It's going to happen. And so he sends this storm, and these other sailors, as we saw with Jonah, are panicking over this situation, and they begin asking these very prying questions, you know, what sort of work do you, where are you from again? Like, we think this might all be your fault, Um, but God's using their questions to kind of wake Jonah up to what he's done, because the answers remind him where he's from, who his God is, what his role is, and these other people on the boat, they're not Israelites. They don't believe in the God of Israel. They're polytheistic pagans like most of the people who lived around Israel so they kind of believe there are lots of different gods gods of every different country and so they said as you may have noticed get up and call on your god we think you might have angered your god so could you like appease him real quick so we don't all drown that's basically what they're saying that's a great illustration right there snapshot of the kind of pagan worldview it's sort of like if your whole job is just to keep the gods happy. Like just, if you make them angry, they're going to punish you. If you're nice, they're going to be nice to you. There's no unconditional love in a pagan religious worldview. Um, You're just there to kind of keep the gods happy, not get on their bad side. And so that's what they're thinking, these other sailors. So they throw Jonah overboard, and it says the Lord provides a huge fish. And that word provides is so important because uh, it, it just conveys God is, is, is taking care of Jonah through what's about to happen. Um, it doesn't actually say it was a whale, by the way. Uh, the most literal translation of the Hebrew, Jonah was written in Hebrew originally, is um, a huge sea creature. That's the most literal version or a great fish sometimes it's translated um it's become a whale in our imagination because when we think of a huge sea creature it's like okay a whale that's the biggest sea creature we can think of um but it's interesting ancient art uh early christian art um it's a little bit grainy but you can kind of see when they envisioned this it was kind of like a dragon serpent like thing and 
Here you've got Jonah, like, coming out, like, touchdown. I don't know. He's got his, like, celebration. I'm getting out of this thing. And um, so, so it, it wasn't really a whale. Uh, it, it was some sort of sea creature. I do want to pause for just a second and talk about this. Talk about this sea creature. Um, because this is what we really fixate on, on this account. You know, what did it look like? What kind of whale was it? Could it have happened? Some people use this narrative to argue against the reliability of Scripture because from naturalistic reasons. So, okay, no one could survive in the belly of a fish for three days. Like, they would drown or they would be digested. They would die. Like, like this couldn't happen. Therefore, this is all a myth, and, you know, you can't believe it. The Bible's unreliable. So people have used Jonah in kind of that sort of argument. Other people, I, it's interesting, I found uh, even many Christians kind of find themselves thinking this way. They'll believe in God, but still feel the need to kind of rescue this narrative with like a naturalistic explanation. It's like, you know, uh, going to really zero in on the kind of fish or the kind of whale and why he could have survived in that whale. I, I've heard this like, you know, well, in the Mediterranean at that time of year, you know, this type of whale, it's like mating season, so there's like all these whales around, and one of those totally could have swallowed Jonah, and like their stomach is like the biggest stomach of all the whales, so he could have fit in there, and the acidity of their stomach acid, I mean, it's crazy, and, and they just kind of, it, 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 essentially, they're explaining it all as if there's nothing supernatural about it. Um, friends, we don't need to go there. We don't need to go there. It comes down to this. If you really believe in an all-powerful creator God as described in the Bible, you believe that this God invented the laws of physics and biology, brought into existence every molecule of every living thing that's ever existed, and if you really believe that's who God is, this narrative should not be problematic. Because that kind of God can create whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Uh, He doesn't obey the laws of biology and physics Those laws obey him. He created those laws. And so simply put, it's a miracle. It's a miraculous thing that happened. And so if a person says, you can't believe the Bible because look at what that says. That could never happen. If they were to say that, they're revealing that they have an anti-supernatural bias against Scripture. They don't simply don't believe supernatural, miraculous things happen. So that doesn't, the conclusion isn't that Scripture isn't reliable. It's that they don't believe miraculous things happen. Um, if we believe in an all-powerful, omnipresent, all-knowing God, it should be no problem for us that at one time he used a sea creature to shuttle a prophet around as he needed. It might be a strange idea. It might be hard to picture, but it's not illogical if you believe in a powerful creator God. But as I said, uh, the great fish is actually not uh, the main point, so I want to keep going. So it says the Lord provided the fish. It was not a punishment. Uh, it was a form of rescue, and Jonah saw it that way because in the next chapter, chapter 2, uh, Jonah sings a song. It's a psalm, really, of thanksgiving for God rescuing him, um, and so I want to read it now, chapter 2. From the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. 
You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and when my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Now highlight this phrase with me, this next phrase. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Now highlight this part. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. That's kind of a left turn right there, that last verse. <laughs> it's a kind of abrupt ending. You don't really see the word vomit a lot in Scripture. That's probably the most notable. Uh, so Jonah is praising God for saving him, even in a time when he was in the midst of disobeying God. He was disobeying God. And God showed his grace to him. And this is so indicative to, of how God treats us. Even when we turn our back on him, go our own way, succumb to our fears, God comes after us. He rescues us. And I had you highlight a couple things in there. Uh, remember God's original mission before the whole whale thing happened? The original plan with Jonah was go to Nineveh, that city, and preach against them and preach to the pagans there. And in, in Jonah's own prayer, he kind of foreshadowed that. He he, he talks about those who cling to worthless idols. That's the Assyrians. And salvation comes from the Lord. He's about to go preach to the Ninevites about the Lord. So the mission is back on. The whale was kind of a detour. The, the mission's back on. And Jonah just experienced uh, rescue. He experienced God's grace personally, and it should prepare his heart for what God's going to do in Nineveh. Let's keep reading verse 3. Sorry, chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, now highlight this, here's the message, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God, and then highlight this, let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. Highlight that. He relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. It's an interesting turn of events. He comes to Nineveh, this enemy capital, with a very bleak message. You have 40 days and you're going to be overthrown. And yet they respond positively. They repent. Uh, 
Now, this doesn't mean they renounced all their gods and goddesses. They were polytheistic. Every, they believed, again, every nation kind of has their own god. And so they're believing, all right, this Israelite prophet is here, and he's saying that his god is going to judge us, and maybe that god's powerful. We don't know who that god is, and we don't want to anger him unnecessarily. So the, the, the Assyrians are kind of covering their bases. That's, that's basically what happened. There's nothing to lose if we repent and kind of worship this Israelite God. Maybe he'll stop. You know, he even says, who knows? Maybe he'll stop and this won't happen. So was it perfect repentance? Was all their theology correct? Did they really understand who they were dealing with? No. But in God's grace, he looked at the Assyrians and he saw their imperfect, ignorant, ill-motivated worship and decided to show them mercy enemies of his people. How do you think Jonah is going to respond to that? The final chapter, chapter 4 of Jonah, I think is the real lesson of the book. So let's finish it up. I'll have you highlight a few things here as we go through it. Jonah 4.1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. Highlight that phrase. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Highlight that. Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant. Highlight that. The Lord God provided a leafy plant. And it made, and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. Highlight that. God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind. Highlight that. God provided a scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Highlight that second question there. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Highlight that phrase, who cannot tell their right hand from their left. That's the end of Jonah. That's the end of the book. That rhetorical question. Should I not have concern for Nineveh and its people? So what can we learn from this book as a whole, especially this last chapter? Jonah was not okay with God's grace being shown to Assyria. He thought it was wrong. He got angry about it. Jonah sounds a lot like me and all of us, I think. In 2018, our season of 
outrage and continually demonizing people. We see things happening. You know, God, why would you do this? Why would you treat them this way? Why would you let this happen? You know, we have expectations of God that he's not living up to. And Jonah did too. Jonah expected evil people to be punished, period. Jonah's justice is better than God's grace. That's what's going on. And he essentially says, you know, I warned you, God. I knew you were going to show grace if I went to Nineveh. That's why I didn't go in the, want to go in the first place. I knew you were going to be nice to them. You know, he, he, ne- he never actually apologized for fleeing. But this is kind of like a sorry, not sorry moment. You know, like, sorry, I wanted to flee. But having said that, it was probably the better choice. Because look how nice you're being to the Ninevites now. But God kind of cuts through that attitude of Jonah with that piercing question. Is it right for you to be angry that I'm showing them mercy? Is it right for Jonah to be angry at God for showing grace to someone he thinks doesn't deserve God's grace? Had Jonah already forgotten what he sang about in the belly of the sea creature about God showing his grace to him when he was being disobedient? Has he forgotten? So God's going to teach him a lesson. He provides, the word provide showed three times there. He provides three things. A plant, which Jonah likes. It's like the best plant ever. It's a great plant. And then he provides the worm, which eats the plant. And then this scorching wind. And and so Jonah doesn't have any shade. It's out there in the desert. It's hot. And God asks him a variation of the question again. Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? And I think what God was doing is that he knew Jonah was too emotional about the Assyrians. He, He couldn't even think of the idea of God showing them mercy. So God is like, okay, I'm going to sort of, let's table the Assyrians for a second. Let's talk about this plant. It's just like an object lesson. He wants Jonah to grasp the point um, by using something non-threatening to him. You know, Jonah didn't create the plant. He didn't make the plant grow. And God's saying, Jonah, you're angry about this plant withering and dying as if you were entitled to it, as if you made it grow. Does that seem right to you? Does that seem like you should be angry about this plant withering and dying? And Jonah, just without missing a beat, yeah, it is right. I should be able to be angry. God is saying, look, the stakes are much higher when you're talking about people. You know, these are people that I made, the Ninevites, in my image, who I love just as much as you. That's essentially what he's telling Jonah. And he's, he's, he's asking, do I not have the right to show them grace? You know, I can see their hearts, the Assyrians. I can see how confused they are. That's why he said they can't tell their right hand from their left. Am I not entitled as the Lord Almighty to show them grace if I so choose? I showed you grace, Jonah. You sang a song about it. But in his indignation toward Assyria, what happened is that Jonah lost sight of his own need for God's grace. And I think that's message, God's message for Jonah and for us is about grace. And we talk about grace a lot here, but I want to define it again because sometimes we forget what it actually means. Grace is undeserved favor. Undeserved. God treating us with compassion and mercy and kindness, and we don't deserve it. That's grace. And somehow we find ourselves believing the lie that if we have God's grace, we deserved it. (laughs) That's why we have it, is because we deserved it. And then we think that other people don't deserve it, and so they shouldn't have God's grace. 
But, but this is the key point I want to make sure we grasp that I think is at the heart of the message of Jonah, is that God's grace is a gift, and it's his to give. God's grace is a gift, and it's his to give. But you know what? The, the problem is we have an unlimited capacity to think we are entitled to God's grace. And we also have a perpetual posture of thinking other people don't deserve it. People in that political group, they don't deserve God's grace as much as me. Citizens of that nation, too far gone. Adherents of this religion aren't loved by God. That friend of mine or family member who deeply hurt me, they're beyond repair. You know, they, don't, they, they don't deserve God's grace in the same way that I do. It's so easy to think that way, and it runs exactly counter to the gospel. Because the gospel is that God gave himself for each of us in spite of our sins. We did not deserve it. And, and our own sinful inclinations, the world, Satan, is, is constantly, the message coming at us is, you get what you deserve. That's, that's the message our world is saying over and over. You get what you deserve. And Christ in the gospel is saying, you don't get what you deserve. I got what you deserve. In my grace, I allowed you not to get what you deserve. That's the gospel. We've been saved by grace. And if we really grasp that, if that really takes root in our hearts, how could we ever judge someone else as being undeserving of God's grace? If we find ourselves thinking that, you know what that actually proves? It proves that somehow we've lost sight of our own need for God's grace. Jonah had. And God's grace will take us to places that we're uncomfortable with. Uh, it will require us to show kindness to people we think are undeserving of it. You know, Jesus spoke about Jonah. Uh, he believed the whale was real, by the way. Um, and he spoke about Jonah. You know, Jesus was always interacting with um, the religious establishment, the Pharisees, who uh, were ver a very judgmental group. And Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for them, the kind of professionally religious, um, because they thought they knew who deserved God's grace and what it took to be accepted by the Lord. And they were kind of the arbiters of it. And they're just sort of pointing out who's good and who's not. And they had forgotten that God's grace is a gift and it's his to give. And so there's this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. I'm going to read it to you from the Gospel of Matthew. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah's story was not just for Jonah. The lessons are for us, and also it foreshadowed a lot about Jesus' life and his ministry. Jesus' life in several ways rhymed with some of Jonah's story. You know, that we read earlier uh, when Jonah's trying to flee, and he's in, the, he's in the boat, and he's below decks, and the storm is kicking up, and the people in the boat with him are like, how can you be sleeping? Don't you see we're about to sink? Jesus, on the Sea of Galilee, in the boat with his disciples, a storm kicks up, and they say, Jesus, what are you doing? We're about to drown. 
It just screams Jonah. It's that scene again. And that same God who showed grace to Jonah, grace to the Assyrians, is now in the flesh in the boat himself. God rescued Jonah through this experience of three days in the belly of the sea creature. And Jesus is saying that our mechanism of rescue is going to be him being three days in the earth. That's the sign of Jonah, as Jesus called it. And this led to Jesus telling stories over and over of God giving his grace to people who did not deserve it. This is what Jesus spoke about as he traveled around and taught. Uh, He told a story of a, a father who welcomes home his prodigal son and the jealous older brother standing right there saying he doesn't deserve to be welcomed home. One time Jesus told the story of the owner of a vineyard who hired people to work for him one day and he hired these guys to work from morning till evening and he agreed to pay him this amount and then there were some people who showed up at like 4 p.m. and just worked the last hour of the day and he decided to pay them the same amount that he paid the people who worked all day and the people who worked all day said wait 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 we we worked all day you're gonna pay us the same as them and the vineyard owner as Jesus said it says don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money or are you envious because I'm generous The vineyard owner can pay what he wants to whom he wants. The father can welcome home his wayward child if he wants. God can show grace to the Assyrians if he wants, to Jonah if he wants, to all of us and anyone else that we think doesn't deserve God's grace. He can if he wants to. So let's ask God to shape our hearts around this topic. To never get to the place where we think we deserve God's grace, we take it for granted and to not be in a place where we are deciding if other people deserve it. It's not our gift to give. Uh, So this idea, as we went through the message this week and was putting it together, um, uh, our team, we were talking about it, and and, and we uh, identified the fact that this idea of grace and undeserved favor is really kind of uh, the foundation behind one of our family values. We have five family values at Real Hope, and one of them is we're a friend to people who are far from God. You know, they're not enemies. You know, they're not uh, antagonists. They're not someone to be, uh, to say they don't deserve God's love, or, you know, they're just heathens or whatever. That's a Jonah-type attitude. We don't want to view people far from God as undeserving of his grace. You know where we want to get to? We want to get to the place where we understand we don't deserve God's grace. And we, when we see someone else far from God living completely contrary to how he would want them to live, we look at them and think, I just want them to experience God's grace the way I have. I want that for them. That is such a different heart than the Jonah heart of like them. They don't deserve it. That's not what we're called to. We're called to love people the way God loves them and to understand we never deserve God's grace in the first place, yet he gave it to us. And we should want as many people as possible to experience it too. The freedom that it brings and the security of knowing that you are loved 